You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Welcome to By the Well. Uh, I'm Sean Winter. And I'm Carolyn Francis. And today we're looking at readings for the start of the lectionary year, the first Sunday in Advent. And we're going to be looking at readings from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, and then a text from the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel for this coming lectionary year, Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. But Carolyn, first of all, maybe we should just recognise that we're at the start of another year of going through uh, the church's uh, liturgical uh, structure and the passing of time, um, and we're moving into that opening season of Advent. You've uh, been someone who's had to accompany communities of faith through Advent over a number of years. What kind of things do you think, what kind of purposes does this season of Advent um, uh, play for a, for a community of faith working with particular biblical texts and th- Advent themes? Well, indeed, uh, I love preaching through Advent, so this is a wonderful place for us to um, begin today. Uh, first of all, I think it's really worth highlighting to people that we celebrate. Happy New Year. We begin to tell the story again. Yep. And then we have to, I'm sure, address this um, immediate discomfort that at the time when people are perhaps imagining Christmas and a baby Jesus, we get this apocalyptic or, or fairly difficult and uncomfortable uh, set of readings. That's right. People are kind year. of in, in preparation mode already and kind of looking ahead and working towards the celebration of Christmas. But the, the texts are trying to do something else to disrupt or disorient some of that, I think. They are. And it perhaps the heart of it, we have this question or this realisation that um, the arrival of God in our midst is sometimes, or perhaps almost always, an uncomfortable right. reality. And so we interrupt a little bit of the sense of the cosiness um, of Advent, and we ask the, the, sen- the question of what does it mean to be anticipating the yeah. coming of God into the world? What does it mean to sit in an active kind of waiting That's right. for the breaking in of this um, gospel that we celebrate? Um, and in a way to, to grasp ourselves what it is that we and the people who have come before us, what it is that we long for, yeah. uh, what is it that we have this sense of not yet having that then the story of Jesus, the gospel, provides some kind of answer That's really to. good, yeah. So it's really important that there's this sense that, you know, what it is that we celebrate at Christmas by way of, you know, the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that doesn't come into a vacuum, right? It, it comes into the real world of human suffering, very often configured in this season as, as some kind of darkness into which light comes. Mm-hmm. Um, the incarnation comes into the experience of human longing, the desire for change and transformation and yes. hope and joy. And, and those aren't, I mean, they're abstract theological ideas, of course, but they're also real experiential lived experiences yes. that people have. So Advent needs to be a time when we try and work with the relationship between the reality of the world around us, the reality of our own lives, and then this this future promise, which is kind of coming closer to us, even in these next few weeks to some degree. Wonderfully said. So it'll be a wonderful time in our churches to name some of the things that are 
most broken in the world, yep. the things about which we pray or struggle to pray uh, most deeply, and then to start to offer via these readings some sense of what it means to declare that God comes into these situations. Yeah, I think um, very often we think of this for very good reasons because of the text. We th- we think of these ideas um, temporally, so in terms of time, what's coming next, <laughs> what's in the future. But I'm struck, and we'll, I think we'll note today, that um, a lot of the language of these texts is also kind of spatial or visual. Mm. It's the idea that we're to we're to look or to remain alert or to open our eyes to things that are already here to some degree or another for good or for ill and i think um to the extent that advent treats what we often call apocalyptic texts in the hebrew bible and in the new testament apocalyptic texts of course are not just texts which tell us what's going to happen next they're texts that open our eyes to realities that we may not previously have seen. They disclose mysteries. They're acts of revelation to some degree or another. Very much so. And uh, implicit in that is this warning that uh, it's very easy for us to miss the presence of God amongst us. It has happened throughout the scriptures and the danger for us is that somehow we are not awake to this which is being given to us. Okay, well, we'll get into the text in just a moment. Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By the Well, for extra content and discussion? Okay, well, with some of the themes of Advent um, out of the way, let's let's look at the particular text for Advent 1 and start off with this um, image or this vision of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. Just tell us what's happening in this text, Carolyn, and, and some of the things that you see going on there. Well, in the very first verse, what strikes me is this idea um, that Isaiah saw the word. Um, and you raised that before, this idea that we are imagining or seeing something of what it um, looks like to be in the situation now, but also to look forward and to see what it will be for God to be more um, deliberately in our midst. Yep, yep. And it's a vision of Jerusalem. Um, what what I, This first oracle that I see is a vision of Jerusalem, um, part of what we often call the Zion tradition in the Hebrew Bible. This This idea that Jerusalem will be revealed to be the place where God dwells and therefore the kind of most significant place on earth. And the vision in verse 2 is almost um, of, you know, one of those CGI things where a mountain is created almost out of nothing and become bigger and bigger and bigger and higher and higher and Jerusalem becomes this kind of eternal city that everyone can kind of be clear about. And in actual fact, I'm really interested that you picked up this ambiguity of seeing a word. Mm. Because in verse 2, it says that uh, the Lord's house shall be established, the highest of mountains raised above all the other hills. And the NRSV says all the nations shall stream to it. There's actually a translation issue there. And many people think actually it should mean all the nations shall gaze upon it. So it's been elevated to this extraordinary place and all the nations shall gaze upon it. And because they can see what it now is, then they say, gosh, we need to go there, we need to be there, come let us go up the, to the mountain of the Lord. Which is a beautiful image, especially when you consider that Zion is in fact not a terribly impressive mountain <laughs> in reality. Absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's a generous hill and so we have this transformation of that which we see with our eyes as well as that which we imagine 
Um, and then this uh, beautiful imagery about uh, the things which cause such suffering in this world being transformed before our eyes yep. into things which can no longer cause harm. Yep. Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Um, the idea that not just is there a war to be won, but that the very stuff of war um, has its brutality taken away from it and it is transformed into something. Absolutely right. And um, if anyone knows anything about the kind of topography of Jerusalem, this is a a city around which and sometimes within which wars have mm. swirled for, for, for generations. It's really interesting how the, the dynamics, if you imagine the passage, this kind of pilgrimage up to Mount Zion, uh, which is described there in uh, verse 2, come let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob so that he can teach us, um, so that we can walk in his paths. That's met in verse uh, the second half of verse uh, 3 by the idea that as the people go up, so the word of the Lord goes out there's this kind of encounter it's not just on them it's not just their search or their quest um that enables them to be transformed into this community of peace what happens is that the torah of god the instruction of god comes out from zion the word of the lord goes out from jerusalem and it establishes um justice and arbitration and creates this new possibility for human community a community of peace um, and justice so um, the image is really one of uh, a kind of encounter between a people who know that things can be and should be different and a God who has come close to them yeah. <laughs> now in, in the location of this sacred place, Jerusalem and the temple. And I do love the dynamic nature of that imagery that the people, but also the Torah, yep. uh, are on the move. That's right, absolutely, yeah. Let's, let's move to Romans. Uh, we're going to jump to uh, Romans before we get to the gospel passage. So let's just look at Romans 13, because this is a passage where there's uh, other dynamic imagery, but, but, but quite different dynamic imagery. Um, it comes just after a particularly problematic passage in Romans 13 about you know, what um, the early community should do in relation to state or political or governing authorities. But this passage um, really kind of drops us very strongly in this apocalyptic worldview of light and uh, darkness. What do you notice about Romans 13 and how it relates to these Advent themes, Carolyn? Well, I think in, in verse 11 we begin with this idea of being waken, awakened from our sleep. Um, and I think there's some question about whether we do the waking up or whether we are woken up by um, something or someone. But but we come to attention, um, and I think this is where um, the Advent themes really uh, become apparent to us. We we come to attention because there are things going on in this world and ways in which we are asked to participate in it mm. that require our active attention and um, engagement. That's right. Um, the passage revolves around this uh, very common structure in, in the way that Paul thinks which is the relationship between what we call the indicative and the imperative. So the indicative here is the statement that salvation is nearer to us now, and the night is far gone, the day is near. Um, it's actually language that's very similar to the language Jesus uses about the reign or the rule of God, and that the kingdom of God has come near. Paul uses exactly the same verb mm. as we find in Mark 1, uh, 14 and 15 here. So that's the kind of indicative, that's the that's the what, what God has done, is doing, and will do part of things. Mm -hmm. 
And then you get the imperative, the instruction. So let, let us lay aside the works of darkness and put on uh, the armour, or I think better, the weapons of light. It's strongly kind of militaristic imagery that's going on here. And um, we need to live uh, honourably. Um, I mean, Advent, so, so this suggests that Advent is not a, a passive thing, that, that, that what you, what you yeah. do in this season of waiting and looking is passive, it suggests that there is stuff to be done in this world. Yes, that, that while we're anticipating, we are doing, um, living honourably and doing these things which are visible, uh, which are apparent to not only ourselves but those around us. Yeah. Um, uh, negatively, it means not doing all the conventional things in Paul's world that, you know, are regarded as problematic. I mean, there's an irony, of course, in reading these in the run-up to Christmas, revelling in (laughs) drunkenness and debauchery and licentiousness. Um, But maybe the fundamental instruction is probably the positive one. This uh, remarkable image of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, literally clothing yourself with Christ. Yes. And, um, I mean, it's an active it's an active image, but it also um, conveys to me a sense of some urgency about right. this matter. Right. I mean, you put on armor because there is threat, threat, or there's something um, you don't you don't hang around in it. You you put it on for a purpose, and so um, here and in the other readings, also, I get this sense that we are supposed to be awake to the importance of this moment, right, the urgency of um, being disciples in in the world here and now in a way that is seen and apparent. Okay, that's great. Um, so these these Advent themes of staying awake, knowing kind of what time you're in, mm-hmm. um, anticipating what is yet to come, being sure about uh, what it is that God's promise uh, offers you, and um, those are themes we're going to come back to when we look at uh, the gospel reading in just a moment. So, Sean, we're uh, entering the Gospel of Matthew now for the first time and we're going to walk with Matthew through this year. Can you perhaps set up for us uh, what we need to look for when we are reading this quite challenging Gospel? Oh, well, there are all sorts of things to look for um, uh, and uh, I could run through them very quickly, but it would still take us far too long. I think the main thing for people to know about Matthew when you're working with it as a text is to recognise that this is a gospel that um, is written after the first gospel that we have, which is the gospel of Mark. And Matthew clearly writes knowing Mark, having a copy of Mark Mm -hmm. in front of him. Um, And anyone who's done any kind of preliminary gospel study will know that what then happens is that Matthew uses lots of Mark, but then edits Mark in some detail, but then adds all sorts of other... Um, traditions, stories, aspects, you know, ranging from the stories of Jesus' birth to the Sermon on the Mount um, to uh, particularly some of the parables that we start to get in this section of Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, for example, which Mm -hmm. isn't isn't really a parable. Um, So reading Matthew, you need to ask, well, if there was already a gospel in place and Matthew now writes another gospel, why is it that he writes the gospel in this way? Mm. And the answer to that, I think, is uh, there are several, lots of possible answers, but there are at least three things probably going on. Um, The first is that there's a real question and struggle and conversation going on about how 
uh, discipleship and following Jesus and a community of discipleship, how they relate to previous communities of covenant faithfulness, namely the synagogue, um, Jewish communities, and questions around, well, what do we do do with Sabbath laws? How do we think about the law of Moses? Um, how do we understand Jesus in relationship to everything that God has promised to Israel prior to now? Matthew is massively concerned with those kinds of questions, but does it in the form of telling stories about Jesus that address those questions? The second is, I think Matthew is probably written after um, the destruction of the Jewish temple in uh, uh, AD 70 or 70 CE. So that elevated Mount Zion from Isaiah 2 is now not a reality for Matthew and Matthew's community. And so they're kind of working out what the implications of that might be. And as far as we can tell, probably are in a situation where they're experiencing some kind of persecution or oppression or at least suffering in some way or another and are working that out. The third thing about Matthew, I think, is that it's a gospel very clearly concerned with the question of okay well if all this jesus stuff is true and the story is true how the hell do you live how do you how do you organize and regulate a community or a life of faith um many churches of course have you know massive great books of regulations for how you do this thing called church and matthew is pretty concerned i think with a very primitive version of that question how do we do this thing called Christian faith together, in community, in the world? And in very challenging circumstances. Yeah, and in, in very the challenging world where circumstances. The world is not welcoming you or pleased for your presence. That's exactly right. So, this is why the Sermon on the Mount is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why there's material in Matthew 16 and 18 about you know what happens if you fall out with someone else in the church and how do you restore mm-hmm. those relationships. This is why there's the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel. Yes. And perhaps why he has what seems to us like um, an extraordinary focus on these apocalyptic-type images. Um, Can you tell us how we talk about this in Advent? (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe the best thing to do is to just um, set the context for the particular passage that we're looking at in Matthew 24, 36 to 44. So the context is that Jesus has come out of the temple, having arrived in Jerusalem, and the disciples um, point to the temple. We're not told what they say. This is the beginning of chapter 24. But we can imagine that they are doing a kind of Isaiah 2 thing. Look, look at how glorious, how yes. <laughs> splendid this, this, this mountain is. The mountain of the Lord, the temple of God. This is where God dwells. And Jesus kind of um, uh, just says, well, sorry guys, but it's all going to be destroyed pretty soon. So that leads to a couple of questions. The first is they go, well, when? Mm. And then they say, and how are we going to know when you're going to come and, and, and do this? So when and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because this would be such a catastrophic event, of course. So chapter 24 is really answering the when question and the what is the sign uh, question. And as Matthew tells it, Matthew writes all of this or remembers all of these traditions knowing that the event itself has already happened. Yes. So you've got this blending between Jesus and the disciples before the event has happened, the reality of the event itself and what that says about God's judgment, Mm -hmm. 
but also the anticipation that the final event is not yet here. The coming of the Son of Man hasn't yet happened. Yes. So when we get, by the time we get to this passage, all these three things are kind of interlocking with one another, and sometimes it's pretty difficult to separate them back out into which belongs to which. Yes, and so we're reminded, I, I think it's important to say, that uh, Advent is a celebration of the coming of Christ as it has happened, and as we anticipate it will uh, happen in the future, or we might want to say as it continues to happen That's right. um, in yeah. our midst. So, And this is where, the, the, if you just think of this in temporal terms... Yes what's going to happen next, what's in the future, what's in the past. That's one way of thinking about these questions, but there are other ways of thinking about this question. Where do we see God not just having come in the past, but having come now here in the present? Where do we see signs of hope of the promise of God's coming into the future? Um, these are These are things about where we look rather than how we organise the timetable. So is this passage uh, somewhat about the posture that we assume while we are waiting for God's presence in our midst? Um, or is it about something that um, we we need to be afraid of? Uh, well, I'm not sure for Matthew those two things are mutually exclusive. No. They probably belong to each other a bit. A bit of, yes. a bit of uh, fear and trembling doesn't do anyone harm for Matthew, I think. But I think there are three things being said here. The first is a very clear declaration at the beginning, you don't know the time. Mm -hmm. So if you're worried about the question of timetable, the first thing you need to know is you don't know the timetable. (laughs) And nobody does. And nobody does, not even Jesus. Yes. Right? Um, Fascinating thing about verse 36, um, the footnotes in your Bibles will tell you, some manuscripts were so embarrassed by, some scribes so embarrassed by the idea that the son didn't even know what the timetable was, that the phrase nor the sun, they actually just take it out. Mm. They, they remove it from the manuscripts in order to kind of save Jesus' reputation in that, in that regard. So that's the first thing. You don't know what the time is. The second is, is that you, um, you're simply uh, unaware of when it will happen and it's going to be a surprise. So if you don't know what the time is, it's going to be a surprise. And it's going to be the kind of surprise that, and I mean this is a bit of a, uh, like a delicate contextual image to use in the context of what's been happening in Australia recently. It's as much of a surprise as a river flooding its banks and sweeping through your village during the night when you're, you're least expecting it. It's yeah. as much of a surprise as the flood was to all of those other than Noah who was told in advance. Um, so, And it might come as in a form of judgment. Yes. And then the third thing is, as a consequence, you need to be ready. You need to be alert. You need to stay mm. awake. Just as, you know, if you're not awake and a thief comes in the night, <laughs> they're going to steal all your stuff. So these images from everyday life, I think, and the appeal to Noah are really ways of emphasising these key, I think you used the phrase, postures yes. <laughs> that we have at uh, in, in the light of the promise of God's coming. Yes, and somehow we need to communicate this to people in a way that conveys that sense of urgency but does not suggest that the opposite of urgency is your own mortal destruction and that of everyone around you. Because I think that that's a a message that um, does not help us in the church, in our culture now. I don't think so. And the imagery that's used of a flood coming or a thief stealing all your stuff 
I mean, those are warnings, but they're, what, they're, what they're prompting to you towards is the posture. That's the key thing, isn't it? Right. The, the, the threat is about trying to help you to realise just how serious. So how would you live if you knew <clears throat> that's right. that the flood was exactly coming? How right. would you live if you knew what you, were, what you had and treasured could be taken away from you? Probably important to say that one particular version of that um, um, reading of the passage, problematic reading, is the, the idea that um, you know, where, where um, there are two in the field and one is taken, this kind of rapture interpretation mm. that that's about, you know, one person being snapped up into heaven, snatched up into heaven, that's probably a mistake. Actually, the, probably the one who's taken away is the one who's unlucky, the one who is judged, the one being left behind is a good thing <laughs> <laughs> in, in this story probably, um, just as being uh, left behind in an ark while the world is being destroyed around you was it's probably preferable. a good thing. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Look, I think. Uh, I mean, you've helped to um, remind me. I think that this is not a question of a kind of you know passive. We just need to be passively wait and see how things turn out. It's a call to kind of reorient your gaze, your attention, to focus on what matters, to focus on what's happening around you, to see the truth of it. Yes. Um, but also, I guess, to then focus inwardly to ask, well. What are you doing? How do you respond? What is your posture, your stance, your attitude and your action in relation to these things? Yes, and at the very least, that posture is our great Advent prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because we watch and see what it is that the world experiences and what it is that we need. That's a great way to conclude. Thanks, Carolyn. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College, and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.